Hi, it's Ian Brody here. Welcome to the More Clients podcast. With me today is John Van Der Ark, who's a partner of McKinsey and Company. He's the co-lead of McKinsey's sales growth practice and co-author of the recently published book from McKinsey, Sales Growth. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you for having me, and Great to be here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask uh, John a series of questions now. The, the core of the sales growth book is really the research that he and McKinsey did into um, in, in, into what effectively drives successful sales growth in organizations. Um, and I'm going to quiz John about some of that content and try and pull out a few lessons for, for everyone listening in. First question, though, John, this is McKinsey's first book in the area of sales. You know, obviously, McKinsey's primarily associated with corporate and business level strategy. So wh- why, why did you this time decide to focus in on sales? What, was, what prompted that? Yeah, you're right, Ian. McKinsey has a deep um, and long heritage, obviously, in strategy, and that's how many people think about us, uh, although we actually have a, a very robust marketing and sales practice, and within that, our sales and channel service line is, you know, the largest in the world uh, by any measure, and we do about 300 engagements per year, so we do a lot of work in the area. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons was to, you know, share experience, uh, share insights, and we haven't uh, published as much in this area as we have in some others. The other one was really, if we looked at the landscape around sales, there are tons of books on sales around, you know, frontline selling. How does a salesperson get to yes? Yeah. Right? But if you think about the topic of sales management as a discipline, uh, that's actually largely absent from business school curriculum. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there's not many people who think about that as not just, again, selling as an activity, but as a function and a discipline. And that got us excited to think about writing the book. So you're kind of bringing a bit more strategic thinking into sales rather than seeing it just as a an individual skill. Absolutely. And individual skill is absolutely critical, but we see more and more of our clients say, adding to the individual skill piece, this needs to be an institutional capability. Right. And the companies that do that and put that at the heart of their agenda achieve astonishing results. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. One of the things you point out very early on in the book is that, you know, although if you look at the, the economy in most Western countries, unfortunately, they're, they're stagnant at best at the moment, there are still very many pockets of quite strong growth in specific client sectors or geographies. And one of the things you point out is if you look at 2008, where the, you know, when the recession was pretty much at its worst and manufacturing GDP in the U.S. fell by $44 billion dollars, even then, if you look beneath the surface and added up those pockets of growth, you know they they grew by thirty two billion dollars. So, and that's over four times India's growth, which people you know people often think, well, it's only other countries that are growing. Um, so, if you think about that perspective, how do businesses tap into those pockets of growth? How how do they find them and succeed in pockets? Yeah, it's a um, it's a great point. The the idea starts with a simple idea, which is averages are deceiving. And so the first thing people do is they get intellectually curious and they say they don't just take the average, but they say any given market, whether it's set of vertical markets or geographic markets, is actually made up of, you know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of individual markets, some of which are growing really fast mm-hmm. and some of which might be shrinking. And so they're intellectually curious. First, second is they get into the data, right? They don't settle for growth rates by region. They actually go down to the zip code level in some cases in the U.S. and really understand what's happening in those markets. Um, There's a great example in the book around uh, an interview with 
DuPont Pioneer Hybrids uh, sales executive, and they make A chemicals. They compete with Monsanto and Syngenta and others, Mm -hmm. and they were getting a beat in the U.S. market, losing share for 10 years in a row. And they, they, their secret was they really went to unbundling markets. And first they went from one to four and then took four into 40. So looked at the U.S. and 40 discrete markets and found some of those are growing fast, some growing slower. And they made different resource choices, putting most of their opportunity where they thought they had the best shot to win. They've gained 10 points a share in soybeans and five points a share in corn. Uh, they're two core products in the last four years. And those are really pretty competitive. Soybeans and corn, are, you'd have to say, would be pretty competitive markets. Absolutely. Well, well, well competed markets. Uh, and the idea of, again, and long, long established markets, right? Mm. People have been selling these for 100 plus years. Uh, but getting underneath and finding the pockets of growth was a secret to their success. So the first step was to, to actually research and get below the surface numbers and drill into that. Did they... Was that enough, just identifying where the growth was? And you said they made some resource allocation differences, so they presumably put more of their sales effort to where the highest growth areas were. Did they also kind of change their offers and things like that? Yeah, exactly. People do uh, lots of different things uh, that go beyond just their sales capacity. So they'll think about their marketing dollars. Right. In this case, they make uh, co-investments. Uh, with a lot of local communities and think about differentiating all the marketing funds. They'll think about supply chain, right? So how quickly do I deliver to certain places or not? And that can be a real differentiating factor in some markets. Uh, and they'll even think about new product offers and development and think about where do I launch first to help me be most successful. So, so again, it was get, it's getting beneath the surface, isn't it? They got beneath the surface of the numbers to see where the growth was and then they got beneath the surface of the need for soybeans or corn or, or whatever and found out what would drive growth in that particular area that their competitors weren't quite doing as well as they could. Absolutely. And then they make practical choices, right, about where they're going to spend their time and money, which are the two two resources that companies typically have. Yeah. And make different choices and try to, you know, line yourself up where there's tailwind and, you know, steer away from where there's a headwind. Right. Just switching subjects for, for a minute, John. What, what, one of the things you, you looked at that will resonate with a lot of listeners, I think, of, of this podcast is is the importance of switching from, I guess, what you might call traditional push selling to selling the way your customers actually want to be sold to. And you did some really interesting research that I picked up from the book about just how important the sales experience was on buying decisions. People often think that you know what the salesperson or sales team does doesn't make that much difference. It's all about the product. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about that research? Yeah, absolutely. So it came out of the idea that you know in a digital world, uh, a lot of people were saying you know the traditional sales experience or selling is dead. Right, and you know, customers have all the power, and they buy. And so we we asked, we did a research of 1,200 B2B purchasers, and these could be purchasing agents, or they could be engineering, or whoever made the purchasing decision in the organization. And then we asked them, right, to rate different factors: so the um, product and service offering, the sales experience, brand, etc. And if on the five big factors, sales experience actually turned out to be last mm. when we asked, right? So that's what they said. 
But in market research, oftentimes, you know, what people say and what they do aren't always the same absolutely, thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So we actually derive the importance. So we also ask them to rate their suppliers on those five dimensions and then ask them to list what shares they give to each individual supplier. Yeah. And you can run a pretty simple multivariate regression and come out with, you know, what actually drives the importance. And so sales goes from from fifth to last in importance up to second yeah. in importance once you run that analysis. And it, it highlights the fact that um, the sales experience is more important than ever. Right? Yeah. Uh, what is also true, though, is it's changing. So as a, another part of that research, we actually ask people, uh, what's the number one destroying practice that a salesperson can do? Mm-hmm. And the number one destructive practice is showing up without something to say. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it highlights this idea of you know, just showing up or measuring visits Right, isn't a great metric. Yeah. Purchasing people are busy. Right, they can do a lot of their own research and information. They want salespeople who show up and add value. Right, you know, and if you can figure that out, you can have a great experience. That is really interesting, John, because in the very last podcast in this series where I interviewed Charlie Green, who is, as you know, is one of the kind of uh, the world leading experts on trust. I asked Charlie. What is the best way of, of building trust with a with a someone you you, you don't know a potential client you not you don't know? And Charlie said, I was expecting something like, oh, you you know you've got to build a relationship, blah blah blah. And Charlie said, have a point of view, get it across respectfully, but have a point of view. There's you're just wasting your customer's time if you show up and you don't have anything different to say. And in a, in a way, it sounds like that's that's coming out from your research as well. Absolutely, very strongly. Okay, so if that's um, if if the, the the one of the keys is actually that that um, the sales experience itself is is much more important, and part of the part of the key to the sales experience is actually having something to say, something useful to do, rather than just knocking on the door and and hassling or as, as we've said pushing. What are the, what are the first te- steps that um, customers uh, that, that um, people listening to the podcast can actually take to improve their sales experience? How would they know what to improve? Yeah, the first, uh, it will sound simple, but the first thing to do is ask. <laughs> right? Ask how customers want to be served. And it's amazing to me how many sales organizations spend lots of time and energy thinking about how they're going to sell, but they don't step back and simply ask, how do my customers want to be served? By the way, that is not a single answer, right? Customers want to be served in different ways based on the occasion. Yeah. Right? For a big new sale at the beginning of the relationship, you know, they want to see a person, and they actually might want to see many people, experts, mm. etc. But for an ongoing question, right, they, they actually prefer to interact either over the phone or often cases online uh, if that's done well, right? And so asking how somebody wants to be served is always the, the best first question. So, so in a way, if you were to ask, if you were, if you were to ask customers, many of them would say, "Ah, the sales experience isn't important," and they're wrong. It actually is more important to them than they than they say. But you should, so you shouldn't be listening to them if they say the sales experience isn't important. But you should be listening to what they say about what they want from that sales experience. Absolutely, and it's a great one of the examples I love is in direct mail. Right. If you ask a customer, right, how do you want to be served, they'll say, quit sending me catalogs. But it's equally true that the more catalogs you send, the more they the buy. More sales you get. So, right, it doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean you stop there, and that dictates your entire sales experience, your entire strategy. Mm-hmm. Right, it's the first input you have. You need to balance that with then 
what am I trying to get out of this relationship yeah. and process? And, you know, getting underneath the underlying need, right, when somebody says something, not just, well, just send me stuff, don't show up, right? That doesn't cut it over time. Mm-hmm. But thinking about, hey, when is it important that I show up and when it can I uh, effectively interact with them, you know, online or uh, over the phone. Okay. Well, that, that actually brings us on quite neatly, I think, to talking about online marketing. And, you know, unfortunately, from what I see, a lot of advice on online marketing doesn't really go much further than saying to people, well, you need to get people to your website and you need to engage with them on Facebook. And that's, you know, that's a bit, a bit like the, the online equivalent of people, you know, telling people they need a telephone without saying how they should actually be using that, that telephone or those online tools. And what struck me in sales growth was that the examples you talked about, about companies who are using online digital um, approaches successfully, went a lot further than just getting people to their website and just connecting with them and just promoting themselves. So you talked about Merck's launch of Genovia, where they went across multiple channels and their focus was on getting useful information into the hands of of prescribers and and influencers over prescribing decisions. So they were doing many different things and really doing something different with their online. So... If you think about a typical business, you know, you've got a website, you've got you know LinkedIn presence, Twitter, Facebook, etc. What's next? W- you know, what should they be thinking about in terms of engaging online that that has an impact? Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, I think this is the book covers both B two B and B two C. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you that you know B two C is clearly leading the way here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many B two B companies are in the exact spot you. Articulator, right? Mm. They know they need to be on Facebook. They have a website, but now what? Right? What's next? And I think a good, a good couple of first steps in the following. One, yeah, or uh, three, I guess at point two. One, mine everything you have, which is oftentimes you get an incredible amount of information in terms of who's visiting your website, what they're looking at, you know, repeat visitors, etc. Uh, many companies take advantage of that. Many don't. Right. right? So mine the data that's sitting right underneath your nose in terms of people who are coming online. Hmm. The second thing is uh, to your website. The second thing is, you know, when you broaden that to social media, start to engage and listen, right? Listen to the conversations, not only about your company, but about your category and about your competitors. Right? You can get an amazing amount of information. There's a great story in the, uh, in the book about uh, Pampers and understanding and getting online to understand listening to moms talk about pampers and their underlying needs and that being both real time and more effective than some of the classic market research yeah. techniques. Comes back to the and it focus, the, it fo- sorry, I was just gonna say it comes back to a bit like your research on how important is the sales experience. What people see in focus groups isn't necessarily how they act, but what they say to their friends on social media is is more reflective of how they act. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the last one I would point to is, you know, test and learn. One thing that really um, highlights some of the best online players uh, and you know, people who are really good in this space, so Capital One, Google, Amazon, or household names who have, you know, in some cases they have teams of PhDs working this, mm. they are constantly testing and learning. They don't set a strategy and then, you know, ride that out for years and years, right? They're optimizing all the time. Right? There's a great story in the book about Google, uh, who one of their executives was curious around why there were the links um, on their page were a different color blue than some of the other blue on the page. They said, well, let's just, let's just try it. Right? So they tried to test um, 40 different shades of blue 
right? And it turns out that all of us, um, you know, prefer a little more purple in our blue and a little less green, yeah. right? $200 million of incremental value just by tweaking the shade blue, <laughs> right? And that's the mindset that these people have, which is continuing to kind of fanatically optimize. Mm. I think in many ways, you know, sites like Google or especially Amazon and, and sites like that, you, it's almost not true now to say, to say go and look at this Amazon site or this is my Google ranking because what you see is going to be different to what everyone else sees because they're constantly testing and refining all the time. There are probably 17 different variants of any given page at any moment where they're, where they're testing all the different variables to see which one's going to pay off for them the most. Absolutely. And so, you know, the pushback, some people say, well, yes, but that's their business and they have reams of people. This isn't, you know, my primary business. How do I get started? And I would say a second step people would have is given all this traffic you have on your website, right, you get terrific information on where people click through, right, what products are connected with other products. And starting with some pretty simple, you know, next product to buy recommendations on the website, Right, if people go to this category, linking to the next category, uh, that can actually that can be hugely powerful, and that doesn't involve right teams and teams of PhDs. Right, Indeed. that's relatively straightforward analytics. Yeah, just getting back to the surface. I, a classic one that I do with quite a lot of clients is um, very often if my clients have certain services they have on their website, but they also have blog posts related to the things those services are working on. So, you know, a classic would be, a, you know, a sales training company has obviously has a services page about sales training, but it also writes about sales. And very often they'll find people searching on Google for sales training because the content is in the blog and not on the service pages. They'll end up on the blog first um, when they've searched for sales training. And, of course, the, if you look in your analytics, you can see what they're coming to the blog pages for and if they're coming for sales training and they're on a certain blog post, get a link to your services page about sales training. That's the obvious next step. You've read a blog post about sales and sales training or how to make sales training effective. Wouldn't it make sense to put the link through to your actual sales training? But very often they don't do that because they haven't taken that step that you're describing of, of just looking beyond the surface, looking at the analytics and, and, and just joining a few dots. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a wonderful example you highlighted of the simple idea of starting with a customer and starting where is the customer going mm. and then how do I link into that behavior mm. versus focusing all my efforts on my website and trying to change customer behavior to driving it to that. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. So kind of optimizing what the what customers are already doing and where they want to go and and it's it's the old I guess it's the old analogy of, you know, if you want to if you want to catch some fish, you know, rather than standing on the banks of the river expecting the fish to jump out, get in the river and put, put your, you know, cast your net in the river itself and uh, and go where the fish are. Exactly, and what a simple uh, story I love on that is J.C. Penney, uh, which mm-hmm. is a retailer in the states, and you know, multi-channel and online is obviously a huge issue for mm-hmm. a retail, given they've got folks, you know, fixed footprints. Mm. But, um, you know, e-commerce is obviously growing more and more each year. They actually put kiosks into their stores and armed their sales associates with helping people get online. Mm-hmm. This idea of, you know, we're actually not going to be afraid of online. In fact, we're not going to change the customer behavior of whether they're going to get online. Yeah. Like, that's a proven trend. What we can do, though, is if they're going to get online, we'd sure love to give them an experience on jcp.com versus a competitive site. So why wouldn't we take advantage of that touch point 
and help them get online and experience what they can do on our website. Right. And so that's a good example of beginning to integrate your different channels as well. Um, I guess very often we think about you know when they're online, get them get them to the offline. But that, that's they're offline, get them online as well. Exactly. So and in talking about offline, um, you know when it comes to that face to face engagement with with customers, clients, you know actual actual selling. And you, in the book, you had three big recommendations. The first one was engaging with customers early. The second was bringing your expertise to the table, and the third was you know, pursuing new prospects relentlessly. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about each of those strategies? You know why they're so important, and some examples of what you what you might do in each of those areas. Sure. So in, engaging the customer early. I think the idea here is you know the world is competitive, and if I catch you know if I'm just catching an RFP from a customer mm. right at the end of the process, I probably don't have a good outcome there, right? Either uh, I'm unlikely to win, or if I win, I win at economics or terms that aren't yeah. very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And so the best sellers are constantly figuring out, how do I get out of that commodity trap? And mm-hmm. how do I get in early? It's a great example of a uh, heavy trucks manufacturer we talked to. Their sales executive talked about bringing in big, big semi-trucks, talked about bringing in their customers at each stage of their product development process for the new product. And I said, you know, that sounds like good, you know, market research or good product development um, activity. He said, no, 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 it's it's not that. He said, we've always done focus groups and things, but this was an explicit sales strategy. And he said, you know, by the time we were in the advanced stages of the product, these customers had it in their fleets. Right? Their drivers were running around testing the product, giving us feedback. But at the end, many of these customers didn't RFP um, for the product. They just bought it, and they ended mm-hmm. up getting a premium and both pricing and gaining market share in the category because the customers felt like it was theirs. This idea of co-creating or co-designing with customers is something that's good for the customer and also great for the seller. So in that that case, in a way, what what looks on the surface like traditional market research is not, the difference is what it's being used for. It's not just being used to get insights to make the product great. It's being used to give the customer an experience which is going to make them more likely to buy. Exactly. Exactly. And then the, the second theme under that we talked about was uh, the importance of expertise and how do you bring that to the table. And again, given, I would argue that um, in many ways, you know, sales have lost the war with purchasing over the last 20 years. Yes. And that purchasing has, a, you know, a full suite of tools, right, processes, online bidding, total cost of ownership models, etc., and, you know, the sellers, while they've made lots of advances, have not come quite as equipped. Mm. And so in order to, you know, be competitive, right, you need to bring something to the table, and expertise is one of those things. Yeah. Not every individual can carry the full the full weight of a firm, essentially. Uh, but the problem is that can be expensive, right? You know, you don't – it can be expensive, and it can de- um, be detrimental to the customer experience, right? One seller we talked about said – you know, we always show up in a bus, right? There's 15 of us in case there's any given question. We want to make sure we can answer it. Okay. That does sound a little bit expensive and, and not even not even something that, as a customer, I would necessarily want. <laughs> exactly. And so the, then, then the art is, well, how do I bring expertise and do it affordably in a way that is helpful to customers? And a great example we heard was a European telecom company, uh, B2C, and during the... This smartphone boom, 
they'd have customers come in and they'd have frontline sales associates, right, who were not well equipped in all the features of all the new phones, yeah. obviously because that technology is moving rapidly. Mm. So they set up video conferencing in the back of their stores. Uh-huh. The sales associate could take a customer back there and walk them through uh, the, or the, they'd get on a video conference and the person at headquarters would then, you know, walk them through the features, kind of the five-minute demo and, you know, they had great conversion rate on that. But what was more interesting about the story for me is he said after two or three visits, the sales associate would never take him back there because they got it. Ah, right? they, 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 learned, actually, they learned as well through the process. They learn, and it, it ties into what we talk about later in the book, how do adults learn? They don't learn through reading manuals or PowerPoint documents. They learn by doing yeah. and experiencing. Yeah. And so if you can figure out ways to have people, your frontline associates experience, um, expertise being delivered to a customer or a client, right? There's a great chance that they pick that up over time, and you can mainline mainline that expertise. Right. And so the final the final um, area you looked at with face to face selling was about you know th- this relentless pursuit of new prospects. I think what was interesting for me was the the challenge you laid out to what many people um, may have seen as the, the traditional kind of hunter farmer model, where you did one thing or the other. Exactly, and I think the, um, I mean, that's an age-old question that um, we were hoping we would get a definitive answer to across the 120-plus companies we researched, and the the answer is both work, right? Some places have very bifurcated models of hunters and farmers separated. Other people have it combined. One story I love of a company that went through both journeys is um, they had it integrated, um, they were doing fine with their existing customers, but they weren't generating lots of new leads. Mm-hmm. So they broke out a separate hunting uh, staff. And for whatever reason, culturally, they just couldn't make it work. They just right. couldn't get the incentives right, high turnover in that group, couldn't get their most talented folks to give up their current book of business to go do it. And so they reintegrated it, but they came up with something called hunting days, ah. where once a quarter, the entire sales organization, 10,000 plus, turns off their phones and Blackberries, and they call on 10 new prospects. And everybody around the world does it on the same day. They generate two months' worth of leads in a single day. <laughs> and it taps into this idea that, you know, the urgent will always override the important. Mm. So if I'm trying to spend 5% of my time every day prospecting, I'm unlikely to ever get to it, yeah. right, in the busyness of the day. But if I could actually dedicate not only myself but the entire team to do it uh, for a dedicated period you can achieve tremendous results mm. well it's a it's a very brave decision to to uh, to do that at a company-wide level um, but of course it's going to work better because then everyone you need is it, the support team are going to be available ready to support those sales calls and things like that as well the marketing team are going to be ready to give any information the salespeople need rather than them not be able to find time in their day as well Absolutely, and there's also a cultural element to it, which is some salespeople love to hunt, uh, but even some good salespeople don't necessarily like to do the true cold call. Yeah. But when everybody does it at the same time, you can imagine all the contests and the competition that you can create around it, and you can take something that is, you know, not so exciting for somebody and actually make it lots of fun. Right. Excellent. Okay, so final question, John. Final question. How have you adapted the lessons that you've learned from the study to your own approach to to working with clients and servicing clients in McKinsey and yourself personally? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, we've always been a very data-driven organization uh, and always have certainly started with a customer and have done, you know, lots of market research studies on both B2B, B2C, segmenting the market, understanding the different needs of the segments, et cetera. But I would say where we have not, um, where this book has really pushed us in this research is, you know, not understanding just the underlying needs from a product standpoint, but also from a sales standpoint, right? How does somebody want to be served? And getting back to asking the question, how do they want to be served? Some people would really prefer to interact largely face-to-face, right? That's mm-hmm. what they want. That's most convenient to them. Other people would prefer to interact uh, online. And so starting out all of our sales uh, work, and if someone's going to think of a design new model with, hey, how does the customer want to be served? Right, is a very powerful question yeah. and is now you know, almost table stakes right. uh, for anything that we do. For anything you do, you're always thinking of that first, not just what great new products and services can we take to them, but how do they want to be served themselves. Exactly. Excellent. Hey, John, that's been really helpful. Hope everyone on the, uh, on the call has been able to pick up something from that, learn something. If people want to delve a bit, a bit further, find out more about the book or, or the work you guys are doing over at McKinsey in this area, where should they go? Yeah, the, great. You can uh, connect with us in lots of spots. Uh, the book can be purchased uh, Barnes and Noble or Amazon, or lots of places online. You could also go to salesgrowth.com uh, to continue the conversation and dialogue. And I'd be happy if you'd follow me at Twitter. It's J underscore Vanderark, V-A-N-D-E-R-A-R-K, uh, at Twitter, where I um, am constantly interested in new and exciting ideas about sales I'd love to continue the conversation so there. you're there listening to people talk about pampers and things or was that was that PG <laughs> rather than you <laughs> excellent thank you thank, exactly. you thank you very much John been a real pleasure um, thanks so much for coming on speak to you again soon cheers alright thank, thank you 